This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Pancreatic Cancer that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. The pancreas is an often ignored organ of the body, especially in antiquity. Its existence and function really were not well understood. Greek physician Herophilus was one of the very first anatomists and regarded as the father of anatomy. Much of what he learned was through vivisecting over 600 live prisoners. He was the first to identify many body parts, including the pancreas. But still, very little was known about pancreatic function until much more recently. In 1889, German physician Oskar Minkowski removed the pancreas from a dog and discovered it had developed diabetes. He was then able to recognize that the pancreas played a key role in regulating blood sugar. Further study of the pancreas over the preceding decades led to better understanding of both its digestive functions and the discovery of insulin. As early as the 1820s and 30s, Italian scientist Giovanni Battista Morgagni claimed to have discovered several cases of pancreatic cancer. But this was very suspect because pancreatitis could produce a similar appearance of the organ. It wasn't until the 20th century that histopathologic diagnosis confirmed pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Pancreatic cancer still remains one of the most lethal cancers to this day. So that's why I'm excited to invite two of Ohio State University James Cancer Hospital's cancer experts here to discuss pancreatic cancer. First, I have Dr. Aslam Ijaz, who is a surgical oncologist specializing in hepato, pancreato, biliary, and gastrointestinal cancer surgeries. He could not join us live today, but will be presenting by pre-recorded video. 
In the studio, I have Dr. Arjun Mitra, who is a medical oncologist specializing in gastrointestinal cancers, in particular pancreatic cancer. Together, they work in a multidisciplinary team to provide care for patients with pancreatic cancer. Arjun, welcome to MedNet. Jingjing, thank you so much for inviting me. Well, tell me, have there been many updates in pancreatic cancer diagnosis and treatment over the past few years? Yes, uh, there have been several um, improvements. Uh, pr uh, one is in imaging technology over the last uh, several decades to help um, diagnose uh, pancreatic cancer, hopefully at an earlier stage. There have been many developments in surgical techniques, um, as well as the use of chemotherapy along with surgery to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. Um, also, in patients who unfortunately have metastatic or stage 4 cancer, uh, there have been many developments in the use of chemotherapy to improve symptoms as well as to prolong survival. Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, a, lot, a big focus on clinical trials and looking at immunotherapies and targeted therapies mm -hmm. uh, to move the needle forward. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, uh, compared to many other cancers, ca pancreatic cancer remains an aggressive and challenging cancer to treat, um, and so we're constantly looking for newer, better therapies for our patients. Thanks, Arjun. Before we dive into today's program, don't forget you can send us any questions you have using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast. You can also find our entire catalog of 120 programs on our website, ccme.osu.edu, where you'll find recent talks like hepatocellular carcinoma. You can also listen to our programs by podcasts. Just search for MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. Now let's get started with Dr. Aslam Ijaz's presentation first. Hi, my name is Asim Ajaz and I'm a uh, surgical oncologist and I specialize in liver, pancreas, and biliary tract cancers at The Ohio State University and James Cancer Center. I'm here to talk to you about the overview and diagnosis and treatment of pancreatic cancer. Uh, the aims and objectives of the talk today is to discuss the epidemiology and trends of pancreatic cancer in the United States, to provide an overview of the workup and diagnosis of patients with suspected pancreatic cancer, and to provide an overview of the treatment strategies based on the stage of disease at diagnosis. To start with some epidemiology, in 2023 in the United States, there will be an approximately 64,000 new cases of pancreatic cancer. This is almost evenly split between males and females, with males comprising approximately 33,000 and females comprising approximately 31,000. In 2023, uh, there will be an estimated 50,000 deaths from pancreatic cancer. This yields a death rate of 11.1 per 100,000 in the U.S. population and an incident rate of 13.2 per 100,000 in the U.S. population. When we look at survival, although pancreas cancer represents only approximately 3% of all new cancer diagnosis in the United States, as you can see here on the a graph on the left, pancreas cancer is responsible for the third most common cause of uh, cancer-specific deaths in the U.S only behind lung cancer and colorectal cancer. And as you know, lung and colorectal are far more common cancers than pancreas cancer. At the uh, uh, time of diagnosis, patients with localized disease have the best chance of long-term survival with a five-year relative survival of approximately 
Unfortunately, the majority of patients diagnosed with pancreatic cancer do not have localized disease and rather have either regional or distant disease. For patients with regional disease, the five-year survival is approximately 15%, and those with metastatic disease or distant disease on diagnosis have a five-year survival of approximately 3%. Altogether, the five-year relative survival of patients with pancreatic cancer is approximately 12%. If we look at the trends in death rates over time uh, and compare it to colorectal cancer, as you can see on the top two lines, um, uh, the trends in death rates for colorectal cancer have been gradually decreasing since the 1970s. Conversely, patients with pancreatic cancer represented in the uh, two, bottom two lines, the death rates have been increasing over time. Uh, um, likely due to the lack of uh, effective screening modalities. Uh, as compared to colorectal cancer. <clears throat> Although it, it remains a lethal cancer and we have made progress over time, as I mentioned previously, the a five-year relative survival rate is approximately only 12%. Now this has improved since the 1970s when the five-year relative survival rate was only 3% and the 1990s when the five-year relative survival was approximately 4%. There have been significant advancements in the treatment of pancreatic cancer in both the systemic uh, treatment through the use of newer chemotherapeutic regimens, as well as more effective and safer surgery and other local therapies, which I will get into in just a bit. In terms of risk factors for the development of pancreatic cancer, uh, there are two main categories, hereditary and environmental. Uh, the four most common hereditary uh, causes of pancreatic cancer are hereditary pancreatitis, uh, which is, results from a mutation in the PRSS1 gene, a mutation in the BRCA, TP16, and STK11 genes, which all uh, uh, confer an increase in the risk of pancreatic cancer as seen in the top right there. Environmental uh, uh, risk factors include uh, smoking and obesity, which are uh, the two most uh, studied uh, risk factors. Smoking confers approximately 74% increased risk compared to non-smokers. Uh, other environmental risk factors include uh, environmental carcinogens such as asbestos and alcohol and coffee have been associated with uh, potentially an increased risk, although these are less studied as compared to smoking and obesity. Pancreas cancer uh, uh, has essentially two main pathways in which it can develop. On the left-hand side, you see uh, that the majority of uh, neoplasms found in the pancreas uh, are pancreas cancer. However, there are a large subset of uh, pancreas lesions, such as cystic neoplasms of the pancreas, uh, that are benign or pre-malignant. The most common being intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasms, or IPMNs. Also, mucinous cystic neoplasms, uh, or, or MCNs, are also pre-malignant lesions. Now, these cysts can be common, um, and the majority of them do not turn into pancreatic cancer. However, however for a subset, there are evidence-based guidelines on how to manage these cystic neoplasms. Uh, in general, the size, morphology, and symptomatology of these cystic neoplasms often correlate with the risk factors uh, of them turning into pancreatic cancer, and these cysts should be evaluated um, by a pancreatic surgeon uh, to determine whether or not uh, they should be resected prior to developing into a pancreatic cancer. On the right-hand side is the most common uh, pathway on how pancreatic cancer develops. 
which is through the pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasm pathway. And as you can see, uh, the normal epithelium can develop into panin 1, uh, or uh, the first uh, degree of dysplasia, to panin 3. And then finally, on the right-hand side, uh, the development of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. In terms of the diagnosis and workup for patients with suspected pancreatic cancer, uh, all patients should receive uh, blood work in the form of a CBC, uh, comprehensive metabolic profile to determine if there's any jaundice or elevation in the liver function test, as well as a CA-99 uh, to assess uh, this tumor marker. While this tumor marker is helpful, it is not uh, spe very specific or sensitive and often can be elevated or falsely elevated in the setting of jaundice. And so in patients with jaundice, the CA-99 should be redrawn after the jaundice has resolved. All patients should receive imaging studies if they haven't already, uh, and the imaging should be a triple-phase contrast-enhanced protocol CT uh, with fine cuts. Uh, this allows for an accurate uh, anatomical staging, which I will get into in just a moment, uh, as well as to assess for um, uh, the presence of regional disease, such as lymph nodes, uh, and distant metastatic disease, um, both in the abdomen and in the chest. Uh, and so all patients should receive both the CT of the abdomen and pelvis, as well as the CT chest. For patients in which CT is um, uh, contraindicated, an MRI is appropriate. Finally, all patients with suspected uh, pancreatic cancer or pancreatic mass should receive an endoscopic ultrasound. This provi provides for a more detailed evaluation of the mass as well as uh, the uh, anatomic relation to nearby structures and allows for direct tissue biopsy uh, of the mass uh, to obtain uh, an official diagnosis. For patients with uh, tumors in the head of the pancreas causing jaundice, uh, these patients should receive an ERCP and should receive uh, biliary stenting uh, as, as uh, necessary. Um, majority of our patients receive a metal stent, although plastic stents can be used. However, these plastic stents do need to be changed at regular intervals. In terms of the anatomical staging of pancreatic cancer, there are four main categories, resectable, borderline resectable, locally advanced, and metastatic. For patients with resectable or potentially resectable disease, this uh, involves less than 180 degree involvement of the superior mesenteric vein or the portal vein, as well as no involvement of any of the nearby arterial structures, depending on whether the tumor is in the head or the body or tail. For head tumors, this often involves the SMA or the superior mesenteric artery. Um, for body and tail tumors, this can involve uh, uh, the celiac uh, axis or branches off of the celiac axis. Borderline resectable tumors can involve or do involve uh, the superior mesenteric vein or portal vein. Um, however, it, it must be involved uh, in a limited fashion and allow for surgical reconstruction of this uh, section of the vein. There can be involvement of the arterial structures, again, either the SMA or the celiac axis or its branches, uh, but this should be less than 180 degrees. If you see the, the uh, image on the top right, this is a borderline resectable tumor, as the tumor is involving uh, approximately 180 degrees of the SMV, as well as approximately 180 degrees of the SMA. Locally advanced or unresectable tumors involve either the SMV or portal vein in an unreconstructable fashion, 
Uh, often this uh, uh, is due to the tumor being low on the mesentery and involving mesenteric branches of the SMV, or greater than 180 degrees involvement of the arterial structures. As you can see on the bottom right-hand slide, the tumor is involving um, nearly encasing the SMV as well as reaching around and, and involving greater than 180 degrees of the superior mesenteric artery. And finally, metastatic disease with the most common sites being liver followed by lung. <clears throat> Optimal treatment of pancreatic cancer truly involves uh, a multidisciplinary approach from the gastroenterologist that I had mentioned to obtain a tissue diagnosis uh, to the radiologist performing and reading uh, and interpreting the images uh, to surgical oncologists for patients that uh, are surgically or potentially surgically resectable um, to uh, dietitians to optimize the nutrition while receiving treatment. Um, all of these specialties uh, truly need to come together to develop a comprehensive multidisciplinary plan in order to optimize outcomes for patients with pancreatic cancer. In terms of active cancer treatment, there are three main categories of active cancer treatment for patients with pancreatic cancer. Uh, chemotherapy uh, is the mainstay of treatment and can be uh, performed in the neoadjuvant setting uh, or before surgery or the adjuvant setting for patients who are resectable or potentially resectable uh, versus palliative intent for patients who either have metastatic disease or unresectable disease. Surgical resection involves pancreatectomy either of the head or the uh, body and tail and can be performed in an open or a minimally invasive fashion. And then radiation therapy can be given both preoperatively, intraoperatively, or postoperatively, uh, depending on the clinical situation. In terms of chemotherapy, there are three main regimens that are used for patients with pancreatic cancer. In 2011, the PRODIGE trial established Fulfirinox, or a combination of 5-FU, leucovorin, irinotecan, and oxaliplatin, as a standard of care in the metastatic setting. For patients with metastatic disease, they uh, this trial uh, randomized patients to receive either fulfirinox or gemcitabine monotherapy. And in this trial, overall survival among patients who received fulfirinox was 11.1 months, and patients who received gemcitabine alone was 6.8 months, uh, which was statistically significant. In 2013, uh, gemcitabine was added to nabpaclitaxel and compared to gemcitabine monotherapy alone. And similar to the PRODIGE trial, uh, patients who received the combination uh, chemotherapy had an overall survival of eight and a half months uh, versus 6.7 months, uh, also establishing it as another standard of care regimen for patients in the metastatic setting. In the adjuvant setting, gemcitabine and capecitabine was compared in the SPAC4 trial. Um, this was in patients who had already undergone resection of their pancreatic cancer and received either gemcitabine monotherapy or gemcitabine capecitabine or oral 5-FU, um, which proved to be superior. And I'll get into the, the details of that trial in just a, uh, a bit. In terms of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients who either have uh, borderline or locally advanced uh, chemotherapy, uh, this truly has become the standard of care. There still remains some debate in patients who have either resectable or potentially resectable disease. Several benefits exist for giving patients chemotherapy before potential surgery. That includes an increased proportion of patients who receive chemotherapy. As I'll mention in just a bit, surgical resection uh, carries a high morbidity rate 
and up to 30 to 40 percent of patients who undergo surgery for the pancreas cancer do not heal well enough from their surgery in order to receive chemotherapy. So front-loading the chemotherapy provided in a neoadjuvant setting increases the proportion of patients who actually receive chemotherapy. There can be a downstaging of tumors, particularly for patients with borderline or locally advanced disease. Um, and to help shrink uh, the, the tumor away from the major vascular structures that I mentioned previously, such as the SMV, portal vein, or arterial structures. It also allows for a selection or assessment of the biology of the disease. And so for patients receiving chemotherapy, there are a subset of patients who will progress and develop either uh, locally advanced or metastatic disease. And by providing this chemotherapy before surgery, we can assess this aggressive biology and potentially prevent a futile surgery. And there is some question of whether or not providing chemotherapy before uh, surgery improves survival. Um, depending on the clinical situation, it does appear that patients who receive chemotherapy uh, before uh, neoadjuvant, um, I'm sorry, before surgery uh, may have an improved survival depending on uh, uh, the type of trial that was performed. And so those trials can really be broken down into uh, the anatomical staging. And so neoadjuvant chemotherapy has been tested in patients with resectable, borderline resectable, and locally advanced disease. For borderline and uh, locally advanced disease, as I mentioned previously, I truly believe that it is standard of care to provide uh, chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting. This not only improves the likelihood of an R0 microscopic negative resection rate, um, but as I mentioned, some trials have shown an improved survival, uh, particularly um, uh, with patients in the borderline resectable and locally advanced uh, setting. In the resectable setting, there is some heterogeneity with uh, the, how the different trials have been performed. Some trials have used chemotherapy alone, and some trials have used chemoradiotherapy. It does appear in a, a meta-analysis of these six randomized trials that there is an improvement in disease-free survival. However, its impact on overall survival is still debated. In terms of surgical resection, this uh, depends on the location of the tumor. So for tumors in the head of the pancreas, this requires a pancreatic oduodenectomy or Whipple operation. Um, as you can see on the left-hand side there, uh, the head of the pancreas is surrounded by the, the duodenum and overlies the SMV and SMA, which is why these structures are often involved um, uh, when, uh, uh, with pancreatic cancer. On the right-hand side is a typical reconstruction after a Whipple operation, and so there are three major anastomoses or connections that have to be performed. The, the most... Um, uh, 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 the, the anastomosis with the most uh, problems often is the pancreatic jejunostomy or the pancreatic anastomosis, which is on the very far right-hand side, um, followed by the hepaticojejunostomy or the bile duct, as well as the gastrojejunostomy. Uh, for patients with tumors in the body or tail, a distal pancreatectomy is performed uh, with a splenectomy um, and a regional lymphadenectomy. So surgical resection or pancreatectomy um, has improved uh, significantly in the past several decades. Uh, previously, the mortality rate after a Whipple operation, for instance, was approximately 30%. Uh, and in high volume centers by high volume surgeons, this mortality has been reduced to less than 2%. However, morbidity, morbidity uh, after pancreatectomy still remains an issue. Uh, the, and, and patients um, uh, up to 50% can experience some sort of complication after surgery. The most common being postoperative pancreatic fistula or leakage of the pancreatic exocrine juices. 
uh, delayed gastric emptying, particularly after a Whipple operation in which the stomach fails to empty and patients are unable to tolerate an oral diet. In post-pancreatectomy hemorrhage, which often is in the setting of a uh, postoperative pancreatic fistula. The median survival after um, a Whipple operation is approximately seven days. Um, in minimally invasive surgery in recent years, uh, the utilization of minimally invasive techniques, whether laparoscopic or robotic, uh, truly has uh, increased in recent years. This allows for the surgery to be performed through smaller incisions, which may result in less pain. It can also potentially uh, result in faster recovery and reduced length of stay. However, there are some downsides to a minimally invasive approach, including higher costs, particularly when a robotic operation is performed, uh, and the learning curve of surgeons uh, to learn these techniques. What we do know, uh, what, regardless of the uh, uh, modality used, whether it's an open or minimally invasive technique, is that volume improves outcomes for patients undergoing pancreatectomy. And so for patients receiving a surgery by a high volume surgeon at a high volume center, the risk of a complication is reduced by uh, 27% and 90 day mortality by 35%. This was uh, a study uh, recently done, um, which uh, was a national cohort study uh, and compared patients undergoing surgery from a high volume surgeon at a high volume center compared to a low volume surgeon at a low volume center. In addition to improvements in, in perioperative morbidity and mortality, uh, our studies showed that there's an improved cancer-specific outcomes, including increased lymph node yield and R0 resection rates. After surgery, um, adjuvant chemotherapy is often uh, delivered. As I mentioned previously, the SPAC4 trial randomized 732 patients to gemcitabine and oral 5-FU or capecitabine uh, to gemcitabine monotherapy. And in this trial, uh, the patients who received the combination chemotherapy had an overall survival of 28 months as compared to 25 and a half months. The five-year long-term survival in patients with the combination chemotherapy was 29% versus 16%. And this was really established as the standard uh, of care uh, adjuvant regimen uh, for patients undergoing pancreatectomy. Uh, this was until the PRODIGE24 trial, which randomized 493 patients to Fulfirinox uh, versus gemcitabine monotherapy. Similar to the earlier 2011 PRODIGE trial, however, this, this was patients in the adjuvant setting who had already received uh, curative intent uh, pancreatectomy. And in this trial, patients who received Fulfirinox had a median overall survival of 54.4 months compared to 35 months. Uh, and now has established this as one of the standard of care regimens uh, in the adjuvant setting for patients undergoing pancreatectomy. The use of radiotherapy can be done in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting, as well as the intraoperative setting uh, under um, a, a current clinical trial. In the neoadjuvant setting, the pre-op PANK trial is the largest trial to assess the use of chemoradiotherapy. And in this trial, patients with resectable and borderline resectable pancreatic cancer were randomized uh, to uh, chemoradiation therapy in the neoadjuvant setting versus upfront surgery and adjuvant chemotherapy. And in this trial, in the long-term uh, results, which were recently published, uh, patients who received the neoadjuvant treatment had improved overall survival, a 27% reduction in, in mortality uh, or, or uh, risk of death, and a median overall, overall survival improvement of 15.7 versus 14.3 months. Also important, the long-term survival in patients who received the neoadjuvant treatment of five years 
was 20.5% versus 6.5%. In the adjuvant setting, the use of chemoradiotherapy is debated. Um, in the U.S., um, uh, this is part of um, uh, certain evidence-based guidelines. And a meta-analysis of four randomized trials did not show an overall uh, survival benefit. However, in a subset analysis, patients with high risk for recurrence, such as those with an R1 or a microscopically positive resection, um, may derive some benefit um, from uh, chemoradiotherapy in the adjuvant setting. Future directions for the treatment of pancreatic cancer um, are early detection. Uh, currently, there are no approved screening modalities or effective screening modalities, as well as improved biomarkers, potentially through the use of things like CT or circulating tumor DNA uh, to assess uh, response to, to treatment. Improved local therapies, such as the radiation therapy, irreversible electroporation, ablative therapies, and aggressive sur surgical resection are also being explored. And the use of immunotherapy, vaccines, targeted therapies, and other systemic therapies are also being explored um, in, in, in uh, hopes to improve the survival uh, in, for patients with pancreatic cancer. In conclusion, uh, premalignant lesions are common and should be evaluated and managed by multidisciplinary teams. Uh, newer and improved systemic and surgical therapy have resulted in a higher proportion of patients eligible for surgery, uh, which does improve survival compared to patients who are unable to undergo surgery. In multidisciplinary evaluation and care and treatment by high volume providers optimizes outcomes. That was a great talk um, by your colleague, um, but I'm wondering how does one diagnose a pre-malignant lesion? Is that something patients would have symptoms for, or how would we catch that? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's uh, often something that's, that uh, doctors struggle with. The majority of these pre-malignant lesions are found incidentally on a CT scan or an MRI that someone got for uh, some other reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they're all pancreatic cysts. Uh, there are benign pancreatic cysts, whereas there are also premalignant neoplasms. Um, the radiologist, uh, a good radiologist, usually is able to differentiate the two, mm -hmm. and they might recommend further evaluation, like, say, an MRI, mm -hmm. to further characterize. Uh, but once something that is a premalignant lesion, so something like IPN-MN or a uh, cystic neoplasm is discovered, um, as Dr. Ijaz mentioned, they should be referred to a pancreatic surgeon. Mm -hmm. uh, there are guidelines for whether these, uh, these lesions need to be followed or whether they need to be resected. Mm -hmm. um, another place that they're found is through screening programs, uh, which I'll talk about, okay. in high-risk patients. Um, and so when those are found, they are um, usually resected um, as appropriate. Okay, so usually the radiologist should be able to tell tell us that this looks like a precancerous lesion. You don't have to biopsy these lesions. Correct. They should be able to tell you that it's suspicious uh -huh. or it's a benign uh, cystic lesion, um, and they may recommend further testing, usually an MRI. Mm -hmm. uh, but the vast majority of times, these are incidentally found. Patient doesn't have symptoms. You just did a scan for some other reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so for the second half of our program, Arjun will be discussing symptomatology as well as goals of care and supportive treatments. Arjun? Thank you so much, uh, Jingjing. 
Um, so my name is Arjun Mitra. I'm a medical oncologist um, at the James, and I specialize in pancreatic cancer. Uh, I'd like to begin with talking about the importance of heredity in pancreatic cancer. Over the last few years, uh, uh, hereditary pancreatic cancer is becoming increasingly recognized. Uh, and current data shows that about 10 to 15 percent of pancreatic cancer is genetic. And up to 10 percent of patients with pancreatic cancer have a family history of pancreatic cancer. So what does this mean in practice? Um, there is uh, a strong push um, very over the last you know, handful of years of referring high-risk patients to genetics or high-risk individuals to genetics. So the, the current recommendations are that all patients with pancreatic cancer be referred to uh, genetic uh, counseling um, for screening. And this is not so much for them, but more uh, you know, to see if they have a mutation or something that can be passed on to their children. Um, and in my experience, most patients want to know that. Uh, also, someone who has genetic syndromes uh, that are associated with pancreatic cancer. So this can be Lynch syndrome, Peutz-Jäger, uh, Lee-Fraumeni, or a BRCA mutation. Um, again, oftentimes uh, their family members and children may need to be tested to assess their risk. But in everyday practice, I think uh, if you do have a patient uh, who you think has uh, a strong family history. So it could be two first-degree relatives with pancreatic cancer or three or more relatives on the same side of uh, the family with pancreatic cancer or someone who has hereditary pancreatitis. Um, I think it's uh, a good idea to refer to genetic counseling um, and they can discuss the patient's risk uh, of developing pancreatic cancer with them. They can also talk about the pros and cons of uh, doing genetic testing. Uh, now, genetic counseling is becoming more and more available. Uh, many hospitals have it available, many uh, cancer practices. So that is in an important resource that is uh, becoming more available to our patients. So now, if your patient or your in, the individual um, has um, been found to have high-risk features or something uh, that puts them at increased risk of pa developing pancreatic cancer, what do you do next? Uh, now, screening for pancreatic cancer is still a field in very early development. Uh, there's still a lot of data emerging, um, so, but in general, uh, the candidates for screening are those who are at high risk. So those that have known genetic syndromes or known genetic uh, mutations such as BRCA, BRCA, or have a strong family history. Uh, the age at which to begin screening is determined by their relative risk. So for example, someone with Peutz-Jäger syndrome has a very high risk of developing cancer early. So screening for them might start at a younger age uh, than someone with uh, a less uh, potent mutation. So these, uh, th this is an area of um, active research and hopefully more data will emerge in the next few years. Now the screening modalities that are used uh, are primarily endoscopic ultrasound and MRCP. 
uh, in high-risk patients. Now, if the baseline imaging is normal, then usually imaging is repeated annually, often uh, alternating between EUS and MRCP every year. Uh, and the goal is to identify early invasive cancers. Um, as Dr. Ijaz talked about in his talk, uh, cancers at the earliest stages have the best outcomes, but also to uh, identify precancerous lesions um, to hopefully uh, remove them if needed uh, and uh, potentially reduce the risk of that person developing cancer in the future. So now I'd like to move on to what the common presenting signs and symptoms are and something that uh, as uh, uh, primary care doctors or internists um, uh, you might come across. So the presenting signs and symptoms often depend on the tumor location. Uh, 60 to 70 percent of these cancers are in the head of the pancreas, whereas 20 to 25 percent are uh, in the tail or body. A small number uh, could be involving the entire pancreas. So if the tumor is in the head of the pancreas, the common symptoms uh, and signs are jaundice. Um, and that's because of the tumor blocking the common bile duct. It can also cause uh, steatorrhea because the tumor also can block the pancreatic duct and stop it from releasing pancreatic enzymes into the gut. Uh, this can often lead to weight loss. Uh, weight loss can be because of the loss of all the undigested fat, um, but pancreatic cancer in general um, causes um, some systemic uh, effects which can lead to anorexia and weight loss as well. Uh, but jaundice is often an early sign in pancreatic head tumors. Uh, patients presenting with painless jaundice may have a better prognosis than those with pain, um, but it's not fully clear and it may be related more to the size and location of those tumors that cause painless jaundice but no pain. Now, uh, other common signs and symptoms uh, for all pancreatic cancers are asthenia, um, anorexia, and weight loss. Pain is imp an important uh, effect. Nausea, vomiting, and also unexplained thromboembolic events. Uh, now, many cancers produce a hypercoagulable state and increase the risk of uh, thromboembolism. Uh, but pancreatic cancer ranks towards the top of that list and it causes a very hypercoagulable state. So uh, specific signs and symptoms. Pain is a very common symptom even with small tumors. Uh, it's usually insidious in onset and often is epigastric um, and has a gnawing visceral quality and patient might say that it's radiating to my back and sides and often it's worse at night. Uh, just because of the location of the tumor, severe back pain can often be seen in tumors of the body or the tail of the pancreas. Uh, another important um, presentation is new onset diabetes. Um, and actually can be in some series can be seen in up to 25% of new diagnosis uh, of pancreatic cancer. 
So in this large study, which was a pooled analysis of a total of 88 studies, there were 50 cohort and 39 case control studies, the overall relative risk of pancreatic cancer in diabetics versus non-diabetics was about twofold. Uh, and what they found was the risk of uh, developing pancreatic cancer was greatest early after the diagnosis of diabetes, but continued to remain elevated compared to non-diabetics. Now, it's still unclear whether pancreatic cancer is a cause or a consequence of uh, diabetes. So, what about in patients with stage 4 or metastatic cancer? Uh, th they all have a primary tumor in the pancreas, so any of the previously mentioned signs and symptoms can occur in them. But other uh, specific things that can happen are you may palpate an abdominal mass. Uh, they may have ascites, and that can be malignant ascites because the tumor has spread to the peritoneum, uh, leading to malignant ascites. In some cases, it can also be due to portal hypertension due to uh, location of the tumor. Uh, in some cases, you can palpate a palpable periumbilical mass. It's um, called the Sister Mary Joseph's node. Uh, now, even in a patient who has all these suggestive signs and symptoms, it's important to know th note that uh, pancreatic cancer cannot be diagnosed with signs and symptoms alone. In 1977, um, a landmark study was published in the New England Journal where they took 70 patients with highly suggestive signs and symptoms of pancreatic cancer. And all of these patients underwent a diagnostic surgery. So what they found was that only 30 of those patients had pancreatic cancer. Some had other cancers of other organs like the stomach. Some had non-cancerous lesions, but some patients had no cancer at all and uh, there was no, uh, nothing found on surgery. So you need a diagnostic workup. So how, where do you begin your diagnostic workup in a patient who you, based on symptom signs, age, uh, if you're suspicious? So for someone with jaundice or, and or epigastric pain, uh, it's important to get LFTs, including bilirubin, to look for uh, biliary obstruction. You'd want to get a lipase for acute pancreatitis. Uh, now, uh, pancreatitis could be an alternate explanation for the symptoms, but pancreatitis, uh, sorry, pancreatic cancer itself may sometimes cause pancreatitis. Um, and you may see this in someone who has chronic pancreatitis with multiple acute flares. Uh, that does increase the risk of pancreatic cancer. Uh, CA199 uh, is a tumor marker that can be useful, uh, but as Dr. Ija has also mentioned, it, it has a low sensitivity when the patient is jaundiced uh, because this tumor marker is elevated in biliary obstruction. And it's more sensitive in larger tumors than smaller tumors. Um, and needs, it needs the Lewis blood group to be expressed, and it's absent in about 5 to 10% of the population, the Lewis blood group. So now that you've done some lab work, uh, you'd move on to imaging. Um, an easy uh, and widely available test you could do is ultrasound. It's highly sensitive for biliary obstruction, and it can also detect pancreatic masses, especially if they're three centimeters or greater. 
It can also detect uh, pancreatic inflammation. So, you know, if the patient has pancreatitis, which could be secondary to the cancer or could be an alternate explanation for their symptoms. Uh, CT of the abdomen and pelvis can also be done. Uh, the advantage that this has is that it can identify metastatic disease. So after you've done Im initial imaging that's highly suspicious for pancreatic cancer, what do you do that's specific for uh, staging of the pancreatic cancer? Uh, the rec recommended imaging is a CT abdomen pelvis using a pancreatic protocol. Uh, so in our institution, uh, you know, what, we, what I do is I order CT abdomen pelvis with contrast and in the notes write pancreatic protocol and the radiologist knows to, um, uh, to protocol it that way. Also do a CT chest with contrast to look for thoracic metastases. The reason to use contrast is to, also, to help look for lymph node metastases. Uh, an MRI of the abdomen can be used instead of CT, um, and that's acceptable. Um, an ERCP may be needed if there's biliary obstruction for biliary decompression or stent placement. Uh, it can also be used for cytology um, during the procedure. Important to note, uh, make sure to do the CT or MRI before stent placement. Once you have a stent in place uh, and the ERCP is done, it can cause inflammation, uh, obscure the tumor, and alter the imaging findings. Uh, endoscopic ultrasound allows for uh, better tumor size and location determination, also can allow for uh, a biopsy of the tumor. Uh, it's important to note that the biopsy is not always required. If patients have a small localized mass uh, that is resectable and has very typical imaging findings, these patients can sometimes be taken straight to surgery, but that's a determination that the surgical oncologist would make. Now, if at initial diagnosis you've uh, found imaging that is highly concerning for metastatic disease, then you definitely need a biopsy. Um, and you need this both for diagnosis, but as well for, as for me, uh, molecular testing uh, to help us plan treatment. Uh, preferably from a metastatic site, such as the liver. Uh, and the reason is that this uh, can be done percutaneously and more tissue can be collected. So you can get a core biopsy and your medical oncologist will be very grateful. Uh, the a percutaneous biopsy of the pancreatic tumor is generally avoided, uh, and this is because there's a theoretical risk of tumor tracking or tumor seeding when you stick the needle through the abdomen and go all the way to the pancreatic tumor. Uh, now, EUS-guided FNA of the pancreatic tumor usually yields very limited tissue and only cytology. This can't be used for molecular testing, and often, uh, as medical oncologists, we have to get another biopsy of the liver mass or something else. And then you'd refer your patient to medical oncology and surgical oncology. Uh, now, Dr. Ijaz went over this in more detail, but just as a brief overview for the treatment of localized cancer, if the tumor is small 
and it's completely within uh, the pancreas, then it could be resectable and that's resectable disease. Uh, borderline resectable, as he talked about, is if it's extended outside the pancreatic tissue and into the surrounding structures, most notably the surrounding uh, vascular structures. And so if it's uh, gone into um, the SMA, but the, it's surrounding the, uh, the arterial uh, the, the, uh, the arterial vessels, but there's not significant, um, uh, it's, it's less than a 180 degree uh, contact. Um, so that is borderline resectable. And unresectable is where it's extended further and it's extended into the superior mesenteric vein, it's extended into the arterial vessels, and there's no way that the surgeon can effectively remove the tumor while preserving those large vessels. So the treatment goals of localized cancer is cure, uh, but it's important to note that the outcomes are still very poor. Even in uh, the very earliest stages, uh, it's only um, you know, one third, a little over one third of patients who can be cured, though we are making uh, constant progress with surg surgery as well as the use of chemotherapy. Uh, what's uh, important to note and is humbling is that there's a high rate of recurrence even for early stage tumors. Now in the treatment of advanced or metastatic cancer, that's stage four cancer, but also includes patients with unresectable tumors or whose cancer has recurred after surgery, the goal of treatment is to prolong survival and to improve symptoms and quality of life. Uh, the mainstay of treatment is chemotherapy, but there are also immunotherapy and targeted therapies. Uh, however, we're always looking for newer treatments uh, to help our patients. And given the overall challenging nature of pancreatic cancer, cl clinical trials are an extremely important part of the treatment continuum. With treatment, average survival, unfortunately, is still about a year. Um, in parallel with treatment of cancer, supportive care is extremely impo important. One debilitating symptom is pain. It's common in advanced ca cancer. It's usually epigastric. Opioids are the mainstay of therapy, but these need to be titrated based on response. Uh, you can use transdermal patches like fentanyl in patients who have nausea and vomiting and can't keep down their oral pills. Also, you can consider using something like gabapentin or pregabalin or duloxetine to treat the neuropathic component of pain because the cancer often is close to the celiac plexus and when it invades the celiac plexus, it can be extremely painful. Uh, if none of those measures work, then um, a uh, interventional pain management doctor would be able to do a nerve block and that can sometimes have dramatic um, uh, improvements in the sim patient's symptoms. Uh, other things are venous thromboembolism. Uh, advanced pancreatic cancer causes a very hypercoagulable state. Uh, however, routine prophylaxis for ambulatory patients is not usually recommended. This can be considered um, on a case-by-case -case basis for high-risk patients, uh, those that have a high Corana score or a prior history of unprovoked VTE. However, all patients should be counseled on warning symptoms 
and have a low threshold for testing. So, uh, for example, needing to do a CT angiogram in someone who has suspicious symptoms. Um, now, if a VTE is diagnosed and the patient has active cancer, the recommendation in general is indefinite anticoagulation unless there's contraindications. And that's because of a very high risk of recurrence of VTE. So low molecular heparin or one of the DOACs um, are good therapies. Uh, warfarin is an acceptable alternative. Uh, now, most, cancer, most patients with advanced cancers are at risk for infection, both because of the cancer as well as immunosuppression from uh, the chemotherapy. Uh, but specifically um, in pancreatic cancer patients, they, they often have biliary stents and they've had an ERCP. Uh, and they're at risk for uh, acute cholangitis due to the introduction of intestinal flora into the sterile biliary system. So it's very important to recognize that in patients uh, who have a biliary stent or have had an ERCP uh, because they require urgent hospitalization and IV antibiotics. Also, you might notice stent occlusion. So suspect this if there's worsening jaundice or rising bilirubin. Uh, your patient might need a repeat ERCP and repeat stent and stent replacement. Um, anorexia and weight loss is something that advanced cancer patients, um, uh, pancreatic cancer patients often struggle with. Uh, most patients benefit from uh, consulting a dietitian to help them manage their eating habits and food choices. Uh, the goal is on trying to get in calories and protein. Um, and this can be helped with small frequent meals uh, because these patients often have anorexia and early satiety. So they just can't eat a lot at once. And so breaking those meals up into multiple small meals often helps them. Uh, you may also consider using appetite stimulants and they may help some patients. Uh, something that many patients struggle with is pancreatic insufficiency. So that's due to steatorrhea, which is loose, greasy, foul-smelling stools, uh, especially after each meal. Uh, they have a lot of flatulence and uh, weight loss because of lack of absorbing fat. Uh, this is due to obstruction of the pancreatic duct or loss of pancreatic tissue. So there's no pancreatic enzyme getting into the gut to digest fat. Uh, it could be because of obstruction of the pancreatic duct by tumor or uh, alteration of the anatomy due to surgery or radiation. This can be treated quite well with pancreatic enzyme replacements orally. So a patient takes it with meals and with snacks. Uh, the dose needs to be titrated um, to meet uh, as needed for maximum effect. Uh, depression and anxiety is very common in these patients. Uh, it's common due to a new diagnosis and often once the realization sets in that this is a very aggressive and often incurable disease. Um, it can be a presenting symptom or a prodrome of pancreatic cancer. Sometimes, often in elderly patients, which is uh, interesting, they may not have any other presentation, but do note, you notice um, symptoms that are very suggestive of depression. So it's important to discuss psychosocial concerns and also make sure that patients have established support systems with family and friends or even support groups. 
and many patients may need antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications to help them through uh, this diagnosis. Um, important to, uh, uh, in the primary care setting is management of their chronic issues. So the dose of antihypertensives and anti-diabetics may need to be reduced due to weight loss uh, and there's a risk of hypoglycemia in, uh, with insulin or sulfonylureas due to the anorexia and weight loss. And they may need more frequent uh, management uh, or dose reductions in their uh, medications. Also important to note that in advanced and metastatic pancreatic cancer patients with limited life expectancy, try to minimize their medication burden. So they may not need uh, a statin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Uh, also, you can probably be less restrictive in their blood pressure and glucose or A1C goals, um, and their routine cancer screening may not be needed, like mammograms or colonoscopies. So, in conclusion, um, identify and identification and screening for high-risk patients is an area of very active research. Uh, but in your practice, consider referring patients with risk factors such as family history or if you know of uh, familial genetic mutations that they have, refer them to cancer genetics to, uh, and they can have a more detailed discussion about the estimated risk and can discuss the pros and cons of genetic testing and screening with them. Um, be mindful of characteristic signs and symptoms that may raise suspicion for further workup. and. Uh, Important to note the management of pancreatic cancer is multifaceted and managing their comorbidities and uh, supportive care in parallel with cancer-directed therapies is extremely important. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Arjun. Now, um, in particular, I think it was great that you went through the symptoms and then the workup that us as primary care would do on the initial setting. And then also really appreciate you kind of going beyond just the cancer therapies, but discussing kind of the palliative treatments and the primary care provider's role in um, a pancreatic pan cancer patient's lives. So thank you so much um, for coming and um, discussing this important topic. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter, Aslam. Pancreatic cancer remains a lethal disease, and although there have been substantial improvements in recent years, optimal treatment truly requires a multidisciplinary approach by specialized providers. And Arjun? So to add to that, I think um, it does need uh, a multidisciplinary approach, but also um, the pri primary care physicians, internists, are all uh, extremely important um, to manage patients' comorbidities and also all the other um, side effects of cancer and treatment. And so this truly is a treatment approach, to, uh, a multidisciplinary treatment approach uh, for the best outcomes for our patients. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to claim both your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points for watching by taking our post-test on the website ccme.osu.edu. Join us again next week when my guests, Dr. Chris Hanks and Ashley Bird, talk about autism spectrum disorder. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.